This is a Federal News Network podcast. That sniffing dog at the airport? It's one of 5,000 pooches federal agencies put to work to detect explosives and drugs or aid law enforcement and anti-terror work worldwide. But sorry to say, the dogs don't always get the humane treatment they deserve. That's according to the Government Accountability Office. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Natural Resource and Environmental Issues, Steve Morris. Steve, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Good to be here with you today. And just review for us the scope of dog use in the government. I had no idea it was thousands and thousands. Yeah, well, Tom, you know, we took a look at the use of working dogs across the federal government. And like you said, you know, we found that there was over 5,000 dogs being used across the government. In addition, there were about 400 dogs being used through contractors for the government. So there was a lot of dogs spread across a lot of programs in the government. And what did you discover with respect to treatment? Because this is not the first time you've looked at this. Well, Tommy, this is interesting because what we did is we took a look at the agency's policies and how they address the health and welfare of working dogs. And we found that there was really no federal standard for care for these animals. And so what we did was we essentially compiled a list of 18 areas that we felt were important for the health and welfare of working dogs. And we validated that list with the agencies and also talked to some expert associations to validate that list. And then we applied it to the agency's policies to see if they were addressing those issues. Right. And you covered pretty much everything that could apply to any animal that is in a pet or I guess in a farm setting, abuse and neglect, emergency medical care, euthanasia, exercise, food and water, the list goes on, medication, sanitation, transportation. What did you find? I mean, do agencies actually have policies and do they adhere to good animal care and welfare? That's a great question. And we we did take a hard look at what the agencies were doing. And You know, we found in some cases the agencies did have some policies to address these various areas, which is a good thing. But we also found that some of the uh, agency programs did not. And some of the key areas, you mentioned uh, abuse and neglect, for example, you know, that was one area where over half of the programs didn't have any policies at all. So we felt it was very important to point that out. You know, another area was just time for rest and time for work and how that would be divided up. Over half of the agencies we looked at didn't have any policies to address that. And the biggest dog operator is the Department of Homeland Security with 2,942 canines, a lot of those in Customs and Border Protection, a lot of them, well, that's where most of them are. And what were their policies and what was their actual treatment levels that you were able to discern? In terms of just overall numbers, you mentioned the Department of Homeland Security. You're right. There were about 3,000 animals. The Department of Defense also had close to 2,000. So between the two, there was about 90% of the working dogs covered by those two departments. You know, some of the good news here is that, for example, within the Department of Homeland Security, TSA was the largest program. They had over 1,000 dogs. And, and that program actually addressed all of the 18 key issues we identified. So that's the good news. Some of the not-so-good news, there were other programs within the Department of Homeland Security that didn't cover all the 18 areas. So those are the things that we wanted to point out and, and make recommendations to, to ensure that those areas were covered. And your basic recommendation is that those 18 areas need to be addressed so that the dogs are cared for properly and treated properly. Absolutely. We're not being prescriptive as far as what the agencies need to do in terms of the particulars. We want to give them that discretion. But, you know, we want to make sure that their policies do cover these 18 areas. And again, the good news here is that, you know, the agencies uh, essentially concurred with the recommendation and some pointed out some steps that they're taking to uh, to address this as soon as possible. 
We're speaking with Steve Morris. He is Director of Natural Resources and Environmental Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Did you come across any instances of where dogs were mistreated? Well, we didn't look at specifics in that way. Uh, again, we took a high-level look at, at the policies themselves. But, you know, there have been reports in the past where some animals have been mistreated, and that was essentially the catalyst for us to do the work. All right. A lot of agencies, we mentioned TSA that has a 1,000 dogs and so forth, the, you know, the large numbers. But a lot of agencies have just a few dogs, and I guess it's just as important. I don't know, like the Defense Intelligence Agency has four canines for explosive detection, just looking at the list. And did you look at that level of granularity? FEMA has four dogs for explosive detection. Coast Guard has 18, yeah, that- these, little, these little places. Absolutely, Tom. And part of what we found is that there's great variation in terms of the numbers of, of animals that some of these programs have. Like you said, some have a thousand, some have a handful. But regardless of the number, we feel like the 18 areas we identified are essential for the health and welfare of any animal, starting with one. And what about contractor involvement? Or This is where contractors operate the dog, so to speak, on behalf of the government? Correct. Correct. And we found from the contractor side that we found that there were about 400 dogs being used on behalf of the federal government through contractors. And some of these contractors in their contracted related documents did address some of the 18 issues, but in some cases they did not. So our recommendation is broad enough to focus both on the, the federal working dogs that the agencies own and also the ones that are being uh, managed by contractors. In other words, in general, you looked at whether they had a written policy for, say, feeding or grooming or medical care, but not the actual carrying out of that policy, but on the assumption that you have to have the policy in the first place before the actual proper care can happen? That's right, Tom. I mean, that that's the starting point. You want to have some documented policy to be clear in terms of what is expected and then have some sort of mechanism to ensure accountability. And did any of the dog operating components cover all 18? That is to say, do they have policies in all of these areas? Yes, some did. And the largest we mentioned, TSA, had over a thousand dogs. Their policies did cover all 18 areas that we identified. So that, that is good news. And were any like seriously deficient in not having much policy at all? There were some cases, Tom, and on the contractor side, actually, we found one example of a program operated by the Department of Defense or on behalf of the Department of Defense and the Army that did not cover any of the 18 issues. Yeah, U.S. Army in Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, has all open open dots there. They don't have anything. But we can't really tell then, and your scope didn't really cover going out to Fort McCoy and taking a look at the dogs. That's right. We didn't you know, actually do any on-site uh, investigations. But again, the lack of policy is an indication that you know, potentially more needs to be done. Right. Any plans to look deeper and see actual dog care? Is that within the scope of what GAO can do? Not within the, the scope of what we did on this one, Tom, but, you know, the various departments have their IGs and, and they can go out and do some site visits themselves to ensure compliance. And just to finalize in general, the agencies, when presented with the need to fill in these policies, were generally in agreement, yeah, we need to have them. That's right, Tom. I mean, most of the agencies were very open with the recommendations, and they concurred and identified some some plans and actions that they plan to take to, uh, to implement some of the recommendations. And by the way, what is good dog practice in an agency? Should there be a dedicated set of people that look after the dogs as their job and not just use them to walk through the airport sniffing luggage or whatever the case might be? 
that's a great question too. I mean, for example, TSA, you know, the handlers care for the animals. You know, in some cases, they basically home the animals as well. So there is a close connection and bond between the handler and the canine. Steve Morris is Director of Natural Resource and Environmental Issues at the GAO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Free.
It's in our nature. The world is always on. But you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. During Mattress Firm's Dream Sember Sale, get a king for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin and save up to $700 on Sealy. Only at Mattress Firm.